The novel Ulysses by Irish author James Joyce is widely considered to be one of the greatest works of literature in the English language. But there's a big problem with Ulysses. It's extremely difficult to understand. I remember having to read Ulysses for one of my classes in college. And I'm gonna be honest with you, without the reading guide and explanations provided by my professor, I would have had no idea what the novel was about. Interesting because I could understand each individual word, but the way that the author put them together made no sense to me. Without that explanation, without that help from the professor, I could have said, I, I could have still read the novel and I could have gone around and said, I've read Ulysses, you know, which is a, a it, it's a feat. Uh, it, it takes some, uh, it takes some commitment. But I would have had no understanding of its meaning or its significance. Last week, we began to talk about this incredible sign that Peter and John performed by healing a lame man at the entrance to the temple. Now remember, signs point to something beyond themselves. That's the nature of a sign. A sign is not meant to be the focus. In this case, the sign itself was pretty remarkable. It was amazing, astonishing. And people could have left the temple that day and for years and years told anyone who would listen that they had seen the lame man be healed. But without an explanation, without understanding to what the sign was pointing, they'd have missed the whole point. So last week, we looked at the sign itself. This week, we're going to follow along with Peter as he explains the sign. We've already seen the sequence before. It's what happened on Pentecost. There were signs, right? Wind, fire, and tongues. After which Peter stood up and did what? He explained those signs. He's like, you saw this, you heard all this. This is what it means. This is what it points to. So as I read Peter's explanation, um, we could call it a sermon because that's what it is, um, we'll be looking for seven stages that he moves through, st seven stages that Peter covers in moving through this explanation. So I'll be reading from Acts chapter three, beginning with verse 11 through the end of the chapter. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him as you all can see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders, 
But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophecies and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. The first stage I call the opportunity. Let's take a moment to recall where we are. Peter and John had been entering the temple for prayers in the afternoon when a lame man who was always begging at the gate asked them for money. Peter and John looked straight at him and told him that they didn't have any money, but what they did have, they would give him. And they said, in the name of Jesus, walk. The text says that the man's legs became strong that Peter reached out his hand, helping him to his feet, and the man walked. And not only that, he jumped and leaped and praised God. Now, I, I have a little theory here. Um, you, you all may not know this, but Calvary is a Baptist church. And I, I have a suspicion that Luke might have been an early Baptist because it's clear that this man was dancing and Luke doesn't want to say that. You know, um, so he's walking and leaping and jumping and praising God. The man was dancing. He was dancing all around Peter and John as they went into the temple, and he was celebrating his healing. It was just flowing out of him. He couldn't contain it. Now, while they're inside the temple, word must have spread very rapidly because when they exit the temple on the other side, which is, as the text says, by Solomon's colonnade, they're mobbed by people. And at this point, this man is still, it says he's holding on to Peter and John. He's like, you guys aren't leaving me. <laughs> I'm not letting you guys get out of my sight. I'm not letting, he's holding on to him. And they're mobbed by people. And these people are just astonished. They're looking at this man that they had seen every day with the shriveled legs sitting by the temple gate. And the man's walking and jumping and leaping and dancing. Now, Peter could have thought, I've done my part. I just performed a pretty impressive miracle. And all these people, they see the evidence. Here it is. It's right before them. I've done my part. I'm tired. I'm going home. But no. Once again, Peter sees the opportunity and he seizes it. So those are two words that sound very similar, but I want you to remember them. He sees and seizes, which means to grab, to take. He sees the opportunity to witness, and he seizes it, he takes it. And look what the text actually says. When Peter saw this, meaning when he saw all those people running to them, when Peter saw this, he said to them. 
He speaks up. Now, you, ha- you, you may have heard the quote that's been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that goes something like this. Preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. That sounds nice, doesn't it? That sounds good. And, and, and I understand what, what, what's trying to be communicated here. It's the importance of our lifestyle um, as those who claim to be Christians. I get that. Um, there are several problems, though, with this statement. The first one is that St. Francis of Assisi never said it, and the second one is that it's not true. So other than that, it's a great quote. Why do I say it's not true? It's the opposite of what the book of Acts shows. The apostles, the believers, the church, they are constantly communicating the truth of Jesus with words. They are speaking, they are preaching, they are teaching, they are having conversations about Jesus, about the gospel. And sometimes that quote by St. Francis, we in, in, in the church, we, we, we kind of use that as an excuse to not speak. I'm just going to be a really good Christian and that's going to be my witness. Well, I would argue that that's part of your witness. But that is not even perhaps the main part, or at least it's, it's only 50%. There's another 50% that goes with it. If this quote had originated in Acts, it would read like this, preach Christ with words always and make sure your life backs up what you preach. And here, Peter, he, he enacts this for us. He takes the opportunity that arises for witness. And his opportunity is to what? To explain the sign, and specifically to show to whom this sign points. That's stage one, the opportunity. The second stage I call the question. The question, it's, it's his introduction. It's kind of a funny question. Here's this guy who's been lame from birth, and all these people have seen him. He's never walked, and he's jumping and leaping, and his legs are strong, and Peter says, well, why are you surprised? Why are you surprised by this? I would have been surprised. And to be honest, I would have been cynical also. I think most of us would have been cynical. When we hear accounts, stories of healings today, aren't we usually often very cynical? Um, But Peter looks at him and says, why are you surprised? Embedded in that question are a number of other questions. So Peter's also asking them, you believe in God, right? You're a good Jewish audience. You believe in God, right? You believe that he's supposedly powerful and capable of miraculous acts. You believe that? And you saw us perform a miracle, right? Or at least you've seen the evidence of it. Then why are you so impressed with us? And why are you so impressed with this healing? What's the logical explanation? Why are you surprised? God is powerful. You say you believe in him. You say you believe that he can do these kinds of things. And you're looking at us in awe. And you must know, you have to know, we had nothing to do with it. It's not our power. It's not our ability. And why are you surprised at the exercise of the power of God? Maybe we should ask ourselves that same question. Maybe we explain away the evidence of God's direct actions in our lives. We explain them away either by coincidence or or fate, or perhaps, as I've said a number of times as we've looked at Acts, we fail to recognize just how miraculous 
a transformed, saved life is. Because a saved life is a life that has gone from being dead to being alive. That's what scripture says. You have passed from death unto life. That's a miracle. That's a sign. Why are you surprised at the exercise of the power of God? And that brings us to stage three, uh, which is called the problem. The problem. So Peter starts out with the question, and then he's going to bring in the problem. He gets personal. Oh, Peter gets personal right away with his listeners. And what's the problem that he sets up? People, and in this case, he's saying you, not you, his audience, right? You have set yourselves up in opposition to God. How does he say that? God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has glorified Jesus. That's God's action. That's God's will. That's what God has done. And then he says, and what did you do? What did humanity do? And man, he doesn't pull any punches. You handed him over to be crucified. You disowned him before Pilate. Yeah, your Roman pagan governor, he was trying to save your Messiah, and you guys disowned him in front of the Roman, emperor, uh, the Roman governor. You disowned the holy and righteous one. You traded Jesus for a murderer. You killed the author of life. Peter, what's going on? Take it easy on your audience. You're breaking all the conventional rules of witnessing. You want to draw your audience in. You want to make them feel safe and loved. Don't bring up sin. Don't tell them where they've been wrong. You're going to alienate all of them. Deal with their felt needs. Tell them that God is going to make them feel better, that he's going to make their lives easier, and that God's going to comfort them. Right? I mean, I'll be honest, I would give Peter some advice like that. Soften your message a bit. No one's going to want to believe you. But man, Peter, he goes right to the foundational, primal problem of humanity. We have all, all of you have rejected Jesus. And that wouldn't be a problem, except that Jesus is the Son of God, and he's the only way to salvation. He's the only way to be saved from sin and destruction. And all of you have crucified him. It might be easy for us to look at the, the, those ancient, that ancient Near Eastern Jewish audience and say, yeah, see what you guys did? You crucified Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the point that Peter was making is that this is true of every human being that has ever lived. We are responsible for the crucifixion of Christ because we have sinned. And sin, any sin, is a rejection of Jesus. Any sin puts us in opposition to God. It sets us up as enemies to God. See, Peter recognizes again the most desperate need of these people. Their deepest need is not to feel better about themselves. Their deepest need is not to have a better self-image. Their most desperate need is not comfort or even physical healing. Their greatest need is to be made right with God. And in our witnessing, as God gives us opportunities, we must not avoid the difficult, uncomfortable topic of sin because that's the problem. And see, without the problem, there's no need for an answer. Without the bad news, there's no good news of the Savior. Now, please hear me. I am not suggesting 
that in the next conversation that you have with someone who is not a believer and it's getting around to spiritual things, you turn to them and say, you crucified Christ. You disowned him before Pilate. You killed the author of life. That's not what I'm suggesting, as true as that may be. But I am saying that our natural inclination is to totally avoid that topic. But we cannot be faithful to the gospel. And actually, we cannot truly show love to the people to whom we are witnessing if we're not willing to address this need. The way Luke writes this and the way Peter spoke it emphasizes the power of God, though, in spite of human action because everything that humanity does is bracketed by what God does, and you can even see that on the page. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. That's the top point. Then he says all the things that people have done, and then he ends it how God raised Jesus from the dead. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. So the power and the sovereignty is still in the hands of God. But our problem, the problem of all humanity, as Peter points out, is that we have rejected Jesus and through sin, we have chosen to become God's enemies. Now, it would be pretty depressing if Peter stopped there, but he continues on to stage four, which I call the hope. And, and this is focused in, in verse 16. Verse 16 holds the hope of this ex-lame man, but also the hope of all people for all time. Verse 16 reads like this, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name. And the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. The name of Jesus. The hope of the world. The healer of this man, the giver of faith. The name of Jesus is the unifying theme of this entire sign narrative. It's in the name of Jesus that he's healed. It's to the name of Jesus that Peter is pointing. And it's to the name of Jesus that the authorities are going to react in the next section. If the problem of humanity is that we are enemies of God and opposed to him, then the answer to that problem is the power of the name of Jesus and faith in him. This is the crux of this sign, the purpose of the miracle, to point people to Jesus, to his power and our faith in him. It's interesting to note, though, the way that Luke words this, the way that Peter crafts it, he's showing that even faith is a gift from God. It's not something that we just engender within ourselves. You know, this lame man didn't know Jesus as far as we know. He had never come to the point of repentance. He hadn't been taught the four spiritual laws by, by Peter and John. He hadn't been given a tract. All that this man had heard was that in the name of Jesus, he was told to walk. And he saw his legs grow strong and he stood in obedience and walked. And the text here says that it is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him. Did you catch that? The faith that comes through Jesus. So it's not only faith in him, but it is faith that has come to us through him. He gives us that faith. And I believe this is what happened with the lame man. Uh, when Peter and John spoke the name of Jesus over him, he received the gift of faith through Jesus. Jesus gave him that faith. 
And in faith, he responded in obedience and stood and walked. The name of Jesus is the only hope for people who are fighting God because they're going to lose. No one can be an enemy of God and win. That's not a pleasant truth, but it's a true truth. <laughs> Let's move on to stage five, the response. The response. If the hope of humanity lies in the name and power of Jesus for salvation, then what is the appropriate response to his name? This shouldn't be a surprise to us by this point, but Peter says the only response is repentance. Now, he does have a little bit of mercy on his audience, and he acknowledges that in disowning, condemning, and crucifying Jesus, they were acting in ignorance. They did not realize that Jesus was the Messiah at the point. But that's no longer the case. And even so, while that might be a mitigating factor, Peter is clear that it does not absolve them. Ignorance does not absolve them. When I uh, had first moved to the United States to go to college, it was my first semester in college, I was driving a borrowed car down a, a, an avenue there. Speed limit, nowhere on my radar, no pun intended. And all of a sudden, you know, I got pulled over by a, a police officer. And he came to my window and he said, uh, good afternoon, sir, are you having a good day? How do you answer that question? Well, I was, but I'm clearly not now. Um, do you know how fast you were going? <laughs> fast, fast, I was going fast? No, I don't have any idea. And he said, well, you were considerably above the speed limit. And he went back to his car, he came back and he's writing me a ticket. And I said, well, I'm gonna try the old, I grew up overseas ploy, right? So I was like, you know, officer, it's that, you know, I've just moved you know, back here to this country. Uh, I've lived overseas my whole life. And just a reminder to those of you who were alive at that time in Brazil, speed limits were, there was none of this radar business and there was none of this, CET did not exist. It was a wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful um, reality. Um, so, you know, the, the concept of a speed limit, especially within the, 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 the city limits of Sao Paulo, was just like, what? Speed limit? So I was like, you know, I didn't even realize about the speed limit. I grew up overseas, you know, I'm, and he's like, well, you will find that they are very strongly enforced here. And he ripped out the ticket and he handed it to me. You know, ignorance is no excuse. And the same is true when it comes to the gospel. Ignorance, un, it, it's, it's, it's not an excuse. So Peter says that the answer to what they've done is repentance. He says, repent and turn. You know, the word itself, repent, carries a strong image. The meaning is to turn. Now I want you to think about an actual physical turning, whether it's in a car or you're walking or a scooter or a plane or whatever. By its very definition, if you turn, you are turning away from something and turning towards something else. So if I'm walking toward this podium and I turn this way, I am turning toward the Rast family and no offense, I am turning away from the Kunapful family. And so when scripture says repent, and when Peter encourages his, his listeners to do this, there's an implicit statement that they are turning away from something and turning to something else. They are turning to Jesus and they are turning away from their sin, 
turning their back on their sin. Just as a sidelight here, I, I would like to invite you to think about something with me that's been bothering me this last week as I've prepared the sermon and as we've been getting ready to reopen uh, our church building for services. What if each of us and what if the church as a whole were as concerned with protecting ourselves, with guarding ourselves from sin as we are with guarding ourselves from the coronavirus? This was bothering me because I, I saw in myself that I'm, I'm maybe a little more concerned about the coronavirus than I am about sin. Um, so this has obsessed us for six months, hasn't it? It has obsessed the world for six months. What should I do? What shouldn't I do? Does wearing a mask help? I don't know. The government, what is the government telling us to do? Let's do what the government is telling us to do. Let's alcohol gel. Let's, what, you know, let's uh, stay home. Let's socially distance. Don't shake hands. Don't hug. Definitely don't Beijing you. you know, what, all these things that I'm doing to try to protect myself from the coronavirus. And what if we had that same aversion to sin? And what if our care for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters was that strong against sin. It's just something to think about. It's not directly related to the sermon, but it, it does come up in this context of repenting. Now, Peter goes on to express that the result of repentance is twofold. First, it's a washing away of your sins. So it's a forgiveness of sins. But secondly, he says something else. It's a unique phrase. He said, repent so that your sins may be washed away, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. is that an interesting statement? Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. I don't think most of us would necessarily connect repentance with refreshment. But as Peter is saying it is that repentance is an avenue by which God sends, gives, blesses us with refreshment. And for, you know, some of you may have experienced this. I know I have, that when you are engaged in a particular sin and you've been under conviction of the Holy Spirit and that's a very uncomfortable place in which to be and you finally give in to the Lord and finally confess and repent, there is a great sense of relief that comes with that, that first moment of confession, that first unburdening of the soul. And I believe that this is, is what, what Peter's saying is that the Holy Spirit will pour out that refreshment on you when you are willing to stop fighting. You know, as long as you're struggling, as long as you're fighting against God, there's not gonna be any refreshment. But if you repent and turn from your sin to the Lord, times of refreshing will come. Uh, I think many of you may know what a plank is, and by plank, I'm not talking about a piece of wood, but I'm talking about the thing that it's very popular now to do with your body to try to strengthen your core, where you lie down, you get on your elbows and on your toes, and you keep your body off the ground, and you hold it there, you know, a plank. I'm seeing blank looks. Uh, I'm not gonna demonstrate for you. Um, I think everyone will be grateful for that. So, uh, <laughs> Christian, would you be willing to come demonstrate a plank for us? Just real quickly, come on. Thank you, I'm not trying to embarrass you, but I want us to get the idea of this. 
His shirt says, James Bond is back. <laughs> so, okay. Okay, sure, I won't make you do this for very long. I promise you. I know it's embarrassing. Um, just, just give us a plank, okay? You know a plank? Get it on your... That is actually a really good plank. It's flat and straight. Okay, you can get up. You can get up. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Christian. I'm, yeah, there you go. All right, thanks. Now, Christian, I don't know how long you've ever held a plank, but I've tried... about so um, anyway if you oh now it's back on so if you if you hold that plank let's say you hold it for an a minute a minute and a half two minutes you have a goal and and as you're moving toward that goal your legs start to shake your arms start to shake your breathing becomes labored um, and you're just longing for that moment of refreshment. And if you have your phone on the floor in front of you and you see that timer just counting down, counting down, counting down, and it comes and you just like collapse. You just collapse. There's no like gradually, and it's like, oh. And that sense of relief is remarkable, especially if that's the last plank of the day. And, there's the, and see, I want us to use that and think of that in terms of this refreshing that comes. We fight against God. We resist God. We fight, we fight, we fight. We don't want to let go of our sin. We don't want to repent. We don't want to confess. And then finally in that moment of saying, okay, Lord, okay, I give it to you. I repent. There's an extreme sense of refreshment. When we finally stop fighting the Holy Spirit and finally stop fighting God, we receive the refreshment from him. Which brings us to, to stage six, and this is going to be a, the briefest stage. I um, only, only want to point it out because Peter is using it, and, and this stage is called the scriptural foundation since Peter is speaking to a Jewish audience, he goes back to the Jewish prophetic voices from the Old Testament. And he shows them how they, so Moses, Abraham, Samuel, how their prophecies back then are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's appropriate for his Jewish audience that he uses the Jewish Old Testament prophets to support what he's telling them. Stage seven is the blessing. And we'll be ending with this, the blessing. Peter's sermon seems to end really abruptly. And it does end abruptly because he's interrupted by armed guards, as we'll see in the next, um, in the, in the next section. But nonetheless, his final statement is profound. Jesus, the servant of God, came to bless people. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you. Oh, that sounds good. And it is good that Jesus came to bless you. And I think most of us would like to take the period and put it right there after bless you. Bless you, period. But that's not the end of what Peter says. He describes how Jesus came to bless him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. You consider that that is a blessing from Jesus. 
when he turns us from our wicked ways. That's one of his most profound blessings. And he says, each one of you. So he's making clear that he's not just talking about the, the nation as a whole. He's not just talking about the religious leaders. He's not talking about the Roman government. He's saying, each of you. Jesus came to bless each of you by turning you from your wicked ways. That's a great blessing of God's. Because allowing us to continue as rebels against him, that's judgment. So allowing us to go our own way, that's judgment. It's counterintuitive to a human form of thinking. But God allowing us to go our own way is judgment. Turning us from our wicked ways, from sin, from perversion, from worldliness, that's a blessing. That conviction that you feel in your inner being about sin... That's blessing. The discontent that you feel after indulging in things that don't please God, that's blessing. The emptiness that you sense even after you have achieved a great goal, but one that is not in line with God's will, that is the blessing of God turning you from your wicked ways. When God convicts us, it's his blessing to us through Jesus. And it's an invitation for us to respond in repentance. So let's bring this to a close. There are two ways I want to, to apply this. First of all, if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, if all this is new to you, or maybe it's not new to you, but you've never repented you have an opportunity this morning to do that. To stop fighting against God and to say, I am a sinner and I believe in Jesus. I repent and I trust Jesus that his death will pay the price for my sin and that he will make me a son or a daughter of God. On the other hand, if you are already a believer in Jesus, but you have fallen into sin, which you have not yet confessed, it's another call and opportunity to you to repent that times of refreshing may come to you. The second way I want to apply this is that if you are a believer in Jesus, then you are also called to be a witness to his resurrection. Now, if you have not figured out yet from our first three chapters of Acts that witness is a theme of Acts, then you have slept through every church service or you have not attended it since we started. Because there's no way that we can miss this. There's no way that we can avoid it. Jesus is inspiring us by his spirit to be his witnesses on earth. Witness of his resurrection and witness of his transformation. So don't be afraid to speak up and to back up your speech with your lifestyle. I'm going to close with a quote by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, very, very well-known British preacher, teacher, scholar, about the primary responsibility of the church as witnesses. Here it is. The primary task of the church is not to educate man is not to heal him physically or psychologically, is not to make him happy. I will go further. It is not even to make him good. 
These are things that accompany salvation. And when the church performs her true task, she does incidentally educate men and give them knowledge and information. She does bring them happiness. She does make them good and better than they were. But my point is that those are not her primary objectives. Her primary purpose is not any of these. It is rather to put man into the right relationship with God, to reconcile man to God. Let's pray. Lord, you have incredibly honored your church, your sons and daughters, by making us ministers of reconciliation, by making us your ambassadors on earth, by giving us the responsibility and also the joy of being your witnesses. I pray, Lord, that you would empower us to fulfill that desire that you have. That, as I prayed earlier, that many, many, many more sons and daughters would be multiplied to your family because of your work in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.